Yeah, that's one thing that I liked about uh, Ray Pete's thing. I didn't get that until later, but since I came from the raw vegan thing, like that, like if you go to like a raw vegan restaurant, they've got all this crazy like sauces made out of like blended nuts and like weird <laughs> fruits. And it's all like very fake and even like cooked vegan food, you know, like the fake meat and um, mm-hmm. all that stuff. And then even if you try and uh, like just eat the regular food, like I, f- I found myself buying weird stuff like goji berries. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's a nice, it's almost like Pete, you know, like I didn't realize, but I was kind of like a slave or I mean, I was my choice and more like a servant to my dietary ideas. Like I spent a lot of time and effort going to different stores and like more money than I probably should have been spending on food. And Ray Pete just has these principles like, well, okay, so here's the things that are normally available and like, you know, cobble something together with that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And also, I also like it um, from just like the perspective of like, individual empowerment because you don't have Mm -hmm. to wait for like some some company or some restaurant or somebody to like create these foods that align with those dietary paradigms um so that way you can feel good about eating them like you it like i said a lot of a lot of those foods are readily available and and easy and usually pretty cheap to buy they're not like they don't have like this dollar markup this high dollar markup because it's like from some you know, slick new, um, entrepreneur, you know, startup. Right. Yeah. I, I was at a, um, that reminds me, I was at a raw vegan, like event kind of, I think I had already started to do like different foods, like, you know, unpasteurized milk and stuff, but I would still go to these places. And there's this place in Pennsylvania in Lansdale. And he was having an event where it was like, a dinner, you know, like a four course dinner. And there was a, a woman there that was just like giving a talk. And I guess she like traveled around and like organized these events with different places. And she was like, you know, talking about like stuff that's healthy that she thought was healthy. But then she told this story about a friend. Uh, She was from like, I guess close to you, like somewhere in like the like mountain area. Like it was either, (laughs) like Nevada or Colorado or something. Uh And she had this friend that wouldn't travel anywhere because he couldn't get like the specific raw dairy, you know, that he like kind of based his diet around. Uh And uh, I was like, yeah. And I guess I didn't realize it at the time, but that was kind of my mindset. Like I was very like, it was sort of like the, the priority was that, I have like this specific thing or else I could die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the, yeah, that's another thing too. I didn't realize is that the kind of difficulty it makes for travel. Um, cause of when I was, you know, doing, um, like a fairly, fairly bulletproof diet, like it's, it was kind of difficult for me to travel. Um, because like you pretty much, yeah, you just have to like cook all your own food cause you can't really rely on restaurants having, like you can generally you can go to like Asian places and you can get a fairly like bulletproof style food um, or like sushi. But yeah, beyond that, like you're not, and this is for paleo as well. Like you're not really going to find a lot of restaurants 
that do paleo. So you have to find a paleo restaurant. Um, and even then it's kind of like hit or miss. Um, but yeah. When Are there I, really paleo restaurants like outside of, cause I don't think I'd ever seen a restaurant that expressly used the term paleo before, uh, what's it called? It in AHS. Boulder. Yeah. Ancestral health symposium. Yeah. yeah. What was that place that, that they had the party at? Shine. Yeah. That was the first one that I'd ever... Like, obviously, there's places, like, if you go to New York, because I used to live near there, um, like, nice steakhouses will give you all kinds of options for, like, you know, they'll cook in butter, and they'll, like, give you a really rare steak and all this kind of crap, and you can get, like, grass-fed meat. But I'd never been to a place that used the words paleo or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that would be the other thing, too, is you just have to end up eating at, like, really high-end places. Yeah, it's just kind of ridiculous. Yeah, so... <laughs> um, yeah, so, did you want to talk about your uh, your anarchism uh, paper that you sent me? Was that the paper you were talking about? Yeah, yeah. It's It's just a little... Like, it's kind of like a blog post, and it's on this website humaniterations.net which I think is kind of left libertarian um, which is probably too specific for most yeah. people to care. <laughs> I mean, I, I know. I know what you're talking about because I I was in the libertarian uh, thing several years ago but but yeah, I guess you, you can give a little a quick little background. Uh, so I don't know too much about this site but I just Basically, I liked the article because this is um, the, so even in the repeat world and I guess in the paleo world, um, there's mostly like when people talk about science, they kind of they'll say, oh, isn't it so terrible that the government is funding these crappy scientists that like say saturated fat is bad or whatever. Uh, they should be funding these scientists that say, you know, saturated fat is good. And I guess that I just think it that can't happen. Like, it has to be the other way if it's being funded by government. Like, you're going to have these problems. And it's inherent. It's like a law. And, like, you can't have science and the state together. And that's what this is. This short thing is about. Uh, and this is just one angle of it. So every scientist should be an anarchist. Um, and the point that they make is they make a few points about like, uh, you know, a lot of basic science was and is funded privately and blah, 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 blah. The kind of like technical, like money details, but just the main thesis is that the idea of science has to be anarchistic. Uh, there was actually a quote from something else. Let's see. Science and innovation are chaotic, stochastic processes that cannot be governed and controlled by desk-bound planners and politicians, whatever their in intentions. Uh, good scientists are, by definition, anarchists. So the idea that it's, I mean, that pretty much sums it up, but that, uh, I mean, I've noticed just being in the science world that the incentives that pop up, and I don't think you could engineer it any other way, are 
conservative, like for theories that are or ideas that are already present, mm-hmm. and that you end up, um, it's just hard to get out of them. Like Pollock talks about that a lot. But I think that he has the idea, oh, you know, we need a better peer review system or we need a better, we need alternative funding. But I just think it's like, if the state has control of science, then it's going to be co-opted by these things. And also, um, isn't it in the news now about the NIH and some of the government funding for, for art is being like chopped or whatever by the Trump administration? Oh, I haven't heard about that. Yeah, I think, you know, stuff like uh, PBS, you know, there's all these memes like they're Mm. firing Elmo. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but have you ever been around like artists that are funded by the government, like to make like sculptures or something? (laughs) No, no, I haven't. Or just like seen, have you ever seen like the art that gets made in like installations, like modern art? Um, It's it's not really very accessible to people. And I think what happens is the same thing that happens with science is when you have an external third party, like the government using involuntary funds to fund it and giving it to people, the artists end up making art for other artists rather than for people Uh because they don't, they don't need the market. And I think the same thing's happening in science is you get these clicks and like the peer review process and different, like all the conferences, the science conferences, and what the scientists are doing is making science for other scientists to get their approval because that's how you get your papers published and your grants funded and like tenure and all of the things that are the the basic incentives of being like an academic today. So yeah. I think it's the same thing as like crappy modern art that nobody you know, and then you go, what is this? And then the people who make it are like, oh, you just don't understand. It's like, it's, you know, it's, it represents, you know, something. (laughs) Yeah. And if you look at art from like 300 years ago, like a, like a painting, like a normal person could be like, oh, that's beautiful, you know? Uh And maybe like some really smart professor would be like, well, you know, the lighting represents and all this other stuff, but it's not like, yeah, there's always a way to like deconstruct it. Yeah. Right. And I think it's, that's what's happening with science. Like I just joined uh, a lab. I just started a postdoc a couple weeks ago and you know, it's a good environment. Like the PI is nice. He's smart. The people I work with, like it's fine, but it's this like pure biochemistry, like enzymology i guess and i could just tell that they don't really care about like the wider implications it's like oh do you think that this enzyme uses this mechanism oh we could publish that and then that would allow us to public and it's just this whole thing about like using these molecules it's like okay we're studying this and like what can we get that would interest the people that publish these articles yeah, yeah. Nassim Taleb, I actually just read a uh, a blog post from him. I, I it sounds like this the stuff he's posting. Let's see, he's like posting it on Medium dot com right now, and it all looks like it's stuff that's going to go into his next book, Incierto, which would be the fourth book and, and final book of his little series of books. 
Um, have you heard about those? Uh, I have not been. Fo- I think I follow them on Facebook, but like the algorithm is kind of like I haven't seen. Oh yeah, anything I know else. that's always the tricky thing. Like they're like, <laughs> I I like that they at least allow you to say that I want to see everything from this person. You know, so that way you don't. Have, if there's like somebody that you really like, you don't have to miss anything. But yeah, otherwise, you probably could miss a lot of stuff. <laughs> Yeah, Facebook's been really pissing me off. Uh, just as an aside, like I had this, I, I I like made this meme that I wanted to put in the comment section of some post from some group, and it's kind of a big group. And I went back to the group, and it was like ten minutes later after it was on my feed, and I couldn't even find the post in the group because the algorithm is so not chronological of what it shows you. Yeah. It, it could be like two days old or it could be two minutes old and there's no way of knowing when it shows up on your feed. It's just some random crap and it makes it really hard to find things and interact with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's, that's uh, one thing that I struggled a lot with um, sort of like, ma- you know, using Facebook as like a tool for like personal research. Um, um, Cause I had a, a problem with that. Like, cause that's how I got into the libertarian stuff was, through facebook around like 2010 um and so i'd get into all these discussions but then like after about a week they became like pretty much impossible to find because the search on facebook is absolutely useless like i don't even know why they bother having it because it's not like it finds anything yeah um but yeah so what i just started doing is i just open up a little like notepad file and i I take the the permalink up at the top of the the URL, um, and then I just copy that, and then I just write a couple of tags next to it, so that way I have an idea of like what that link is to, and that way I can just always go back to it um, and find it. And generally, that works out pretty well. The only thing that would happen is if that uh, thread was destroyed for whatever reason, but that usually doesn't happen. Uh. Yeah, that's that's a good idea. I I get kind of overwhelmed with stuff like that. Yeah. Um but back to Nassim Taleb, I've I read three of his books. Oh, okay. Uh, the Fooled by Randomness, The Black Swan, and Anti Fragile. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I uh I listened to um Black Swan on audiobook and then I'm reading Anti Fragile right now or I've kind of taken a break from it, but uh in this uh this latest blog post that he had he had something very similar to like what you were talking about um let me see if i can find a quote proper quote and he says i have in many instances quickly jotted down ideas on a piece of paper along with mathematical proofs and posted them somewhere planning to get them published no fluff or the ideas free verbose circularity of social science papers in some fake fields like economics that is one that is one that is ri- that is as ritualistic and dominated by citation rings, I discovered that everything is in pre- in the presentation. So the criticism has never been about the content, but rather the presentation. There's a certain language one needs to learn through a long investment, and papers are just iterations around that language. And so it's, it's kind of the same thing, um, you know, where the academics are just making papers for other academics. Yeah, that's even one step worse, though, because it seems like they're not even like it seems like he's suggesting that the the bulk of what they're doing is just stylistic, mm-hmm. like um, 
almost like it's fiction. Like yeah. It's just, oh, like the, your prose is nice in there or whatever. Well, I think when you get into really jargon heavy papers, that's, that's a, that's actually true. And like, I think jargon is, is useful because it really helps to have terms that mean a specific thing. Um, instead of like having some, some phrase and having to like use that phrase every single time you just have a single word that means that thing. And it also creates like a referent, um, like an object that can, that can also change. And I was kind of yeah. an, an abstract idea there, but like another one of his ideas here is scientism looks more scientific than real science. And like, that's one of the, like, I don't like a lot of papers where it's like a lot of statistical manipulation and stuff like that. If you read a lot of like older papers, um, they're pretty easy to follow. Like you don't have to have a lot of background in what's being discussed. You don't have to have a lot of familiarity with like statistical methods. Um, yeah. They're pretty straightforward and, and, but, and they're still discovering thing. Whereas like with the statistical um, papers, you know, they find like some like small difference. Um, and then that is, and so like that, that's more scientific because you're using all these numbers, like all these mathematical formulas, but you're yeah. not really like doing real science because you're not like, you know, doing like the basic science type stuff. Yeah. I suspect that, you know, a real effect wouldn't need as much statistics as most, like, say, molecular biology papers use. Yeah, yeah exactly. Not like, only that, when I was running my statistics, at some point, one of this undergrad that was working with me said, um, do you know that you're, if your uh, data is normal, like a normal distribution? I was like, no, not, not really. I mean, <laughs> just I'm just using, like, a normal distribution statistical test. And I didn't even realize that I guess like you're not supposed to do that unless you have at least an N of 30, which I didn't. And I was looking around and everybody does it like, especially with like animal studies. Cause it's just kind of a pain in the ass. Like I think a dozen, like an N of 12 or 10, like eight to 12 is normal. Or if you're going to like feed mice a certain diet or give them a drug. And of course, they use like Gaussian normal distribution mathematics, which is strictly speaking like illegal uh, in statistics. Mm. And, and so, so how, do, how does that change the? How does that change how it looks? Um, it. So the test that they do, like whether it's a t test or um, analysis of variance, if the data are assumed to be normally distributed, then the amount of um, variation between different samples will be more or less than if it was considered to be a different distribution or like if it was unknown. So you would either get like, you know, usually a p-value of less than 0.05 is considered significant. So you would either be more or less likely to get that in a particular bunch of data, depending on whether you assumed the data was normal and it wasn't, or if it was or whatever. 
So I, I think it's easier to get um, statistical significance, basically, if you assume, assume the data is normal. So everybody does. And they just kind of know or don't know that you're not supposed to do that. Hmm. But everybody does it. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and then see, like, just in talking about this, I'm still not quite sure exactly what you're talking about. But like, to me, I think like, if you had, if you just did like some simple math, like you you know fed the mice this diet and then 80% of them um, had this symptom like that's pretty obvious. You don't need to have like some fancy statistical analysis in order to see that effect. Right. Well, okay. So in my example, like for my dissertation, I, one of my main things was, uh, just weight gain. So the mice that I fed coconut oil were fatter than the mice that got a low fat diet, but they were different amounts they gained, they gained a different amount of weight than the mice that I fed vegetable oil to. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't say in a binary fashion, like these yeah. mice got fat and these didn't get fat. So you take like, say 12 mice and they all have body weights, like at the end of, you know, three months of feeding them a diet. And then there's, you know, four groups or however many groups. And then you throw all that into this big analysis of variance. And then it tells you, okay, well, this group gained more weight than this group. And here's the statistical significance. Like, uh, you know, it's less than 0.05, so it's significant. Whereas these other two groups, the average or the mean of this one group is higher than the other one but it's not statistically significant. And that's all dependent on what kind of test you use and the assumptions of that test. Cause like if you have a hundred people and in one group and you take their weights and the average is 150 pounds or something. And in the other group, it's 151 pounds. Like you can't really say that they're different, you know? Mm -hmm. And, but there's a, a, a number depending on how many people in your sample and how different it is at which you start to mathematically say, okay, I have confidence that these two groups are actually different. Like if the average was 160 pounds or 165, like, and so you get more confident. Uh, but the, the math that gives you the, the actual numbers that people report has assumptions built into it um, that either give you more confident numbers or less confident numbers. And of course, people just err on the side of having more confident numbers for themselves. Yeah. Okay. So like basically the, a lot of the statistical methods allow you to, um, look at multiple variables, um, or just, you know, have more like more granularity in discussing the, the results. Yeah. It's basically trying to find small differences because if you had, like, if you just have a bunch of mice on a low fat, like a regular chow diet, and then give another group like a high fat diet, then you don't need much statistics to show like the high fat type mice will like be like way twice as much, you know? Mm -hmm. But if you're trying to do something more subtle, like, um, you know, like BPA in plastics or something like that, uh, you might only get a slight weight difference or like, um, maybe if you give the mice a glucose tolerance test and their blood glucose after, like an injection of glucose is, you know, you chart that over time. 
it, it'll, you know, every mouse is different and there'll be variation within one group. So you have to compare that and it gets kind of tricky. And then people have to decide what's a real difference. And of course, everybody's incentive is to show a real difference. Yeah. And most of the time people don't, people don't publish negative results either, which Mm -hmm. is a huge problem. Yeah. Like my PI, I I remember saying like, well, we could just publish that there's not a difference. And he was like, well, no, you can't. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, isn't that the same thing? Like there is a difference between these two things. There is not a difference between these two. Like those are the, like those two statements are symmetrical. Yeah. Well, it's, it's still valid information. Right. And, and like valuable information. So that's just one more bias is that, um, and then it, it, and then it gets into gray areas where the least bad version of that is that you just don't publish your negative data. So there's a bias towards stuff that you found that was significant, but it gets even more dishonest. Like if you're doing a test that you can redo, like a simple biochemistry assay, somebody might redo it until they get a difference. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I, you know, I, I have a feeling that there is a difference and maybe I just did a shitty job like pipetting or something. And that never gets accounted for. So, you know, maybe somebody publishes something and say, this is the results I got, but they did it like five times to get that one thing. Okay. So you're saying they'll do it multiple times until they get a result? Yeah, sometimes. It depends what the field is and what the uh, actual assay is, but you can... It's tricky. Like, everybody has... Every field and then every lab has their own process, and it's a very... I guess it's kind of rare for somebody to have a, a truly dishonest process, but there's just always this subtle incentive to, like, oh, you know that didn't like people will say that didn't work like oh my test didn't work and somebody might think oh it didn't work like the machine shut down halfway through or like (laughs) something blew up Mm -hmm. but what they really mean is they didn't get a result that they wanted or the result that they thought that they should get so it didn't work and uh that's like a really bad concept it's considered pretty valid like oh it didn't work do it again until it works and it's like (laughs) what do you mean by work that's the problem right (laughs) yeah oh but then at at that in that way you're almost playing with statistics again right because like there's like some statistical chance that it will work and so you're just finding that one statistical chance yes yeah to be i mean to be totally honest every time it's almost like this weird universal thing. Like uh, every time you do it, that counts in the universe as a, t- yeah, as a as a test. You know, like do, you know that um, there's some statistical law or it's like a little trick that I still can't like square in my head. Uh, where if you're given the choice of three options, and then you make a choice, and then in an alternate version, somebody tells you that one of the options like say a door like there's a prize behind a door or something they open one of the doors and then say okay now you can change your your choice 
So you might think, well, it's 50-50 because they just made my choice. Like, assuming that your first choice wasn't the door that they opened and showed there was nothing, um, then you basically just made a choice between two doors, right? Mm -hmm. but, but, but supposedly, if you re-choose, you have a statistically better chance of getting the right answer. In the alternate universe? or Like, in, if somebody just tells you, okay, it's not door three. Like, say it's like, okay, choose door one, two, or three, and you go, I'll choose door two. And they go, okay, it's not door three. Do you want to change your choice? And you're like, well, why would I change my choice? It's either door one or two, so it's 50-50. But according to <laughs> some mathematical thing, it's actually not 50-50, and if you re-choose to door one, you're more likely to be correct. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> And I've been told this by like professors and all kinds of people and there's like proofs for it. So it's, but that doesn't make sense, right? Mm -hmm. No. <laughs> but so in that kind of sense, when you do something again, it's like you're changing the reality of it. Because you're all of the other things that you can't understand about what's affecting your results are happening again. You know, like magnetic fields or whatever so how but so how would removing door three make door one more likely um when you choose door one in or, a in one the, and in, three choice well, but the, in the example let's just stick with the example so we were choosing door two and yeah. then then they removed door three but you were saying that door one would be actually more likely so how would how would uh, removing door three make door one more likely? Uh, it's something to do with, like, if you keep your original choice, you you still have, like, a third of a chance. But if you make a new choice, then you have a 50% chance. Like, your, your chance of being correct is preserved from mm. your original state of ignorance, mathematically, hmm. somehow. And yeah. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> I don't... I can... Tell me that's just like not not updating your variables. <laughs> like you... apparently it's true. Like people have run computer simulations. Oh, that's that's crazy. Those computers didn't update their variables. That's what. I, was... <laughs> I I don't know about that one, but I I was just gonna go for a lot more uh, simplistic angle. Um, and you know, because we were talking about having these multiple attempts at a at a study um you do it you know four or five times on the fifth one you finally get the result that that you believe is the correct one um well like you should include all of those results because that would actually be because you were talking about how like you know the universe sort of keeps track of all of those things right um so it, it would according to the you know the the great you know, record book of the universe, it includes all five of those attempts. Um, and so it would be more um, accurate to include all five of those attempts. And I mean, that's kind of like what the scientific method is about, is that reproducibility. Well, if you can only get it like one out of five times, that's like, that's different from something that you can get every single time you try to reproduce that experiment. Yeah. 
Yeah, it makes me think of, like, when you were younger, did you have friends that skateboarded? Or did you skateboard? No. (laughs) So there's this thing, like, this, like, joke that I, like, people that know skateboarders, like, they always get this joke where, like, if you have a friend that is really, like, into, like, learning how to do skateboard tricks, and he's like, oh, I can do this trick. And then you'll say, oh, well, show me. Like, say you're, like, both 11 years old. Mm -hmm. And then he tries it, and he, like, falls on his ass, and he tries it again and tries it again. And he's like, well, I did it yesterday. And, like, to a skateboarder, if they did, like, you know, some, like, Tony Hawk trick once, yeah. <laughs> that means they say they can do it. <laughs> uh, and, but usually, like, most people would consider, like, you can do it means, like, on on call, you yeah. know, like, on demand. Yeah, on, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's like so. It's kind of like that kind of thing. Like, oh, we got this result once. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the skateboarder fallacy. <laughs> right. <laughs> um. So, uh, I I actually googled like a really just a bunch of words having to do with what I was just talking about, and I found out what it's called. It's called the Monty Hall problem. Okay. Uh, a probability puzzle loosely based on the American television show Let's Make a Deal. And named after its host, Monty Paul. Um, and then it says, suppose you're on a game show and you're given the choice of three doors. Behind one door is a car, behind the other is goats. <laughs> you pick a door, say number one, and the host who knows what's behind the doors opens another door, say number three, which has a goat. He then says to you, do you want to pick door number two? Is it to your advantage to switch your choice? And there was this huge controversy. Many readers of the column of the person who wrote this refused that it would be beneficial, including nearly 1,000 PhDs. Even when given explanations, simulations, and formal mathematical proofs, many people still do not accept that switching is the best strategy. Uh, Paul Erdos, one of the most prolific mathematicians in history, remained unconvinced until he was shown a computer simulation demonstrating the predicted result. And the predicted result is the contestant should switch to the other door under the standard assumptions, contestants who switch have a two-thirds chance of winning the car, while contestants who stick to their initial choice have only a one-thirds chance. Hmm. So it's not even the one-half that you were talking about earlier. It's actually two-thirds. So it's almost like yeah. like door one is absorbing... It's toxic. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's absorbing the the statistical chance from door three. Yeah, it gets that that that's yeah, I don't know. That's probably not an accurate way to think about it, but that's funny. It's not that's not like super applicable to what we were talking about. But no, I was just thinking example. while you were bringing that up, I'm like, we haven't even like really talked about nutrition whatsoever yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're just we're just discussing our so basically our philosophy, which is good because I that's what I wanted to do. Um, is is bring some some philosophy to to what what we're doing, you know? Because I think that's I think that's what science needs. Um, so this guy's name is uh, Jay Dyer, and he like I don't know how I came across him. It I think it was just like some YouTube recommendation. He had like was in some it was like some podcast about esoteric hollywood where he um analyzes or like deconstructs these like big hollywood films and like finds all the esoteric reasons like 
you know, conspiracy stuff like the Illuminati and, and stuff like that, like all this like symbolism inside them. Um, mm. But he's pretty interesting because he has uh, a, like an orthodox, he, he basically uses like orthodox philosophy, um, which is like a rejection of enlightenment philosophy. So it's like, so I've been pretty fascinated by that stuff. Um, like a medieval, yeah, university. Which I think, style. yeah, I think is is really really fascinating because, like, I've always wondered, like, the people who lived like several hundred years ago, they had to have been like, like, just have like different conceptions about the Earth, and not even just like, you know, ha ha, the Earth is flat, or you know, the the sun, we're you know, we're we're the center of the Earth. Not even just like stuff like that, but just like their conception of like of you know just everything um and how they approach philosophy like or if you've ever like read like a lot of like um greek philosophers how they like Mm -hmm. discuss things and convince you and like how they make their arguments um you know to them like they're making a completely solid argument but like to us it like it's like okay like it doesn't really make any sense to to like someone that is grounded in you know modernist and and enlightenment philosophy a lot of like that rationalist philosophy uh-huh yeah i noticed that in uh when i i read like a couple of plato uh whatever you would call those um you know where he's narrating Socrates talking to people Uh and his points are kind of loose. Yeah. (laughs) Like, well, you'd have to admit that, uh, you know, for example, like in, um, is it the Republic or Gorgias or he's convincing somebody that, uh, a rich man who is unjust is less happy than a poor man who's just or something like that. Yeah. And it had to do with like, you know, happiness only comes from justly acquired property or something. And it's like, does it like he, he doesn't. Yeah. Like, uh, well, it's basically define that. Yeah. It's an, it's an assumption. Um, right. Which I think is ultimately this Jay Dyer's point is that because his whole thing is he, he thinks that that science needs philosophy um, because of that stuff, because in science, you, you have those same assumptions, but nobody actually acknowledges them as assumptions. And so that's why like, you know, Plato saying that is almost being more honest than, than several scientists or, you know, pretty much any scientist is because he is saying that, or he's putting it out in the open that this is an assumption. And so like, if you disagree with that assumption, then yeah, his point is invalid, but, that's kind of the point of philosophy, I guess. Right. So, yeah, I think that modern science, like whether it's biomedical or even economics, has tried to take philosophy out of their, uh, you know, it's kind of like how people say like, oh, we need to get money out of politics or we need to get like mm-hmm. universities out of politics. But like what politicians really want is to get like government out of politics and just it's just like like a technocratic like yeah we all know the right thing to do and we're just going to do it <laughs> yeah like it's no longer political you know like there's there is no political decision like there's no perspective well that's what like the, it's just, yeah 
that's what the scientism is about you know like all like the scientific policy and stuff like that like that's like this is how science says it's supposed to be so that's that's how it's got to be it's not it's not a political issue anymore and there's no yeah there's no philosophy or like critiquing of it it's just like this is what science shows so i think it's like the same the same forces at work there yeah uh there's this economist i really like uh robert murphy and he he's on like a few podcasts and uh he said something like you know science it, he was relaying an argument he's having with somebody about how science is a branch of philosophy and the person he was arguing with said well no it's not it's the scientific method you know it's not and then so he says well where'd the scientific method come from like it's not self-evident <laughs> because you can't you can't apply the scientific method to the scientific method so yeah of course the scientific method arrived from a philosophical uh like proposition you know that we live in a world that can be understood like that phenomena are yeah. like replicable <laughs> yeah exactly like that. that that's a, that's exactly one of the points he makes in this paper is is what you just said that the scientific method can't be proved by the scientific method and so it is right. itself an assumption um he uses it to sort of like um make fun of like a lot of rationalists okay quote it is this notion of scientific and epistemic neutrality which must first be examined and dispensed with presuming to interpret the phenomena of experience without a conceptual framework or schema within one's lexicon of linguistic symbols becomes self-evident upon reflection yet mysteriously eluded so many of the empiricists of the last few centuries precisely because it contradicted their dogma of tabula rasa Ironically, this is already an older, outdated philosophy of perception that perfectly mirrored the zeitgeist of Hume, Kant, or Locke. For those studied in modern philosophy of science, phenomenology and traditions counter to the Darwinian ethos, there are numerous indicators which show the facts of our experience are rather parts of a network of signs and symbols as well as being situated within a web or our wider or more foundational beliefs and assumptions about the world. So... Yeah, but and then he goes on to talk about how, because uh, the whole tabula rasa idea is that there are these like fundamental facts that can be known. Uh-huh. Um, and so he talks about an earthworm. Let's take the earthworm as an example of how science actually functions on the ground and consider what philosophical and perceptual truths emerge that are, in fact, prior to the actual praxis of the scientific method. The earthworm investigated in the lab is the earthworm as known, experienced, and interpreted by the individual scientist, given his inner framework of past experiences, accumulated knowledge, and present direct experiences with the slimy dirt dweller, all of which form an interpretation of the object before him in the lab. Right. Does he does he flesh that out anymore? Uh, yeah, there, there's more. I mean, so I'll continue the quote. Upon reflection, it should be self-evident that the mechanics of how this creature is understood will be informed intuitively by the mind of the scientist's conceptions concerning it. In other words, the earthworm does not spontaneously generate its own wholly new meaning to the fresh mind's eye, nor does a scientific blank slate of perception simply record quantitative facts about the object, add them all up, and produce an earthworm calculus for all such species. Right. Yeah. So like some things about the earthworm would be more notable to a scientist because 
like they're human and they <laughs> what they it have would be different for a computer yeah. each well each person has its own like uh their own context and that's um so I'll continue the quote a little bit and then I'll 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 go where I want with this this earthworm did not appear out of a vacuum with an instruction manual nor does the mere quantification of its length weight diet etc afford the science afford the scientist all possible earthworm gnosis or knowledge and so um that's kind of like that's that's what i like about um ray pete so much is because when you're reading his essays like he's been reading so much for so long that he has just this prodigious knowledge about the history of any given um topic particularly in biology but also in like several other um subjects as well and so he can he'll he can discuss like the individual personalities the scientists that were like doing the research back then he can talk about like the political um climate that was going on at the time and so he provides a lot of context for those kinds of results like that's that's what i found so incredibly um valuable in ray pete's essays yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Ray Pete was refreshing when I was in grad school because, um, well, this is actually something that I wanted to work on. I think I told you about like making lecture courses on, uh, like online, you know, mm -hmm. about like biomedical topics. Yeah. And I think the way it should be taught is sort of the way that Ray Pete writes, which is, um, it's kind of like history. Yeah. Because you can't really say, like if you were able to get a sample from say a nutritionist classroom book from 10 years ago or 20 years ago, like the facts would be different. Like cholesterol does cause heart disease, doesn't cause heart disease, you know, yeah. salt causes heart hypertension, doesn't cause it. Well, the, whatever the true truth is, <laughs> you know, didn't change. Um, so what they should be teaching people is that this experiment, you know, it showed this. Or like this, um, whether it's epidemiology or some, an animal experiment, like the original cholesterol rabbit experiment and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And then the professor that's teaching the class, they can have an opinion on whether cholesterol, you know, quote, causes heart disease, unquote. But it's not, it's not a binary fact. It's like this thing that has to come to the conclusion. Because if it is a binary fact, it can't change. Yeah. So the very fact that these things change in the textbooks means that they weren't facts to begin with. Yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of like the fundamental problem of like this attitude that people have about sciences or have about science, you know, like and that's what um Taleb, you know, was calling scientism. And there's like several good essays, you know, sort of like deconstructing this scientism, you know, and I'd like I'll call like like people like uh Bill Nye or Neil deGrasse Tyson. I I call them science evangelists. Yes, I hate <laughs> those guys. They're the, they have to be stopped. Yeah. They're yeah, they're like I I think I would call them the bureau of science or something like the bureau <laughs> of like public science. Yeah, cuz they're That's out there good, basically yeah. 
being these like friendly faces that people think they're cool when they share their videos or something like, Oh, you know, this guy's so cool. Yeah. Like, look, he's funny. Like, you know, that old Tyson meme where he has his hands up and it's like, we got a badass over here. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's funny. It's cool. And he can be a funny guy and Bill Nye can be funny. And I liked his show when I was a kid, but they just fly off the handle. They say all this crap about like, I guess these days climate change, but whatever the issue is, and they have this whole, well, the science is settled. Yeah. And they treat science like it's like what you were saying. Like it's evangelist. Yeah. Like a religion. Well, like it's a Bible, basically like this is what the science said. Like, you know, it's again. Um, and this is one thing that, that Jay Dyer actually goes into with, with his Orthodox philosophy is that, um, you know, a lot of like the Protestants, like they kind of like, by not by getting rid of the church, they've kind of um, painted themselves into a corner because now that they don't have a church to tell them like what to think and what to do, now they can only go off of the Bible. Um, uh-huh. And so they have, and so now the Bible has to be infallible and it, you know, there, there can be nothing um, false about it because if that's false, then, then you have nothing. You have nothing right. to go off of. Um, and so that's the same thing, you know, the, the science, science is the Bible. And, and so science is infallible. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think that that all comes about, like, I've gone back and forth. I mean, when I was really young, I became an atheist, like I was like 12 and I would argue with people about it. Like I've always been into arguing and I was like, this is so stupid. Religion's so stupid. It caused all these wars. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess I'm still an atheist, but what I've noticed is that the religious tendency does not go away with the belief in like whatever you know Abrahamic religion some American was brought up in, mm-hmm. because the same actions and the same attitudes they showed towards these like Bill Nye types, um, and it you know stuff like climate change or. Uh, I don't know, like the, the emotional feeling somebody gets about like a GMO issue um, without really understanding it. Uh, I don't even really have an opinion on that, you know, and I'm pretty sure that I understand it a lot more than most people. <laughs> yeah. And these people, they they put their because they still have the same tendency towards faith. They hadn't they haven't addressed themselves and what inside of a person requires that or whether that needs to be fulfilled in some way. And then they think that they're being rational um, and they don't examine that. So they just go, Oh, well, I'm just going to go. All the scientists agree like 90, mm-hmm. 97% of the scientists agree. And that's basically the Bible says, so it's in the Bible. It's like the same tendency. Yeah. Well, again, we're, we're back to the, what we were just talking about that there are basically some assumptions you have to make in order to make any kind of like rational or logical progress. Right. You know, either you have to assume that the science is correct or that the Bible is correct, but, but like those things themselves, they like, like you were saying, they can't be proven. Right. And also the science and the Bible are shorthands and people don't want to get into that. (laughs) Yeah. Like, of course, the Bible, you know, has been translated and changed over the years. But science is is even worse because it's it's like this totally nebulous term. Like it's everything from, you know, when somebody's 
there's a, a tremendous disconnect between if you said the word science and had like some millennials brain hooked up to a computer, <laughs> they would, what would come up is like a beaker, you know, or like a, a pipette or something yeah. or like lab animals. Um, and then, so they go, Oh, well that's like so scientific, you know, but when somebody says the word science, they might mean like some guy running statistical analysis or somebody giving out like a really crappy questionnaire to like fat people about what they ate that week, you know? Yeah. Or so, you know, when somebody says science, they're like, Oh yeah, the scientific method. But it's like, you can use that word to mean all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you can use that in all kinds of like, just like a personal everyday thing. Um, you know, like, let's say you have, or I mean, like it's, you can do that with your diet, you know, just have a hypothesis, eat whatever kind of like food that you think is causing this and then see if that has an effect. Like that's more or less the scientific method right there. Right. Obviously it's a lot more rigorous when you're doing it formally, but that's, you know, at the heart of it. But see, that's, and that gets to one of the issues, right? People would be aghast at that as calling that science because it's not being done by the priesthood. Yeah, exactly. It, They're having, <laughs> having this appearance. Um, yeah, the Nassim Taleb, going back to his um, uh, posting, he has a picture of a Greek or, you know, like like five Greek Orthodox bishops, you know? Uh -huh. <laughs> and yeah, and, and like what you were talking about earlier, you know, with that language of having, you know, developing that, that language that, that everybody in the know knows, um, you know, basically, you know, and then like you were saying, the lab beaker and the, and the lab rats and stuff like that, that's all creating this appearance of science that creates this aura of authority. Right. Yeah. It's like, why can the, the, the bishops tell you what God said? Well, it's because they have like a robe and like a scepter and some type of hat. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, is that really, would you be able to talk to God if you wore that stuff? Oh no. Cause I'm not a Bishop. Well, what process did they go through? Like, and at some point people in their mind, they kind of have accepted there's a mystical transformation. It's like for science, it's oh, like yeah. getting a PhD. All of a sudden something happens. We yeah. can't quite describe it, but you become a scientist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and any of the research you do is now correct um, any, you know, and if you go and talk on TV, anything you say is, is now correct. Like, well, yeah. it's at least, it's at least worth listening to and having to be refuted if people disagree with it. But if you're not a scientist, then you don't, you're not, you don't deserve a reputation. People can just say like yeah. on the Senate floor, you know, this Alex Epstein guy who is like, has this, I love fossil fuels thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He was talking about fossil fuels and Barbara Boxer's like, are you a scientist? Yeah. So it, it's just a, a rhetorical tool to immediately dismiss anybody. Exactly. And then if, what does she really mean, right? She means, have you been approved by a university that's accredited by the government to have a PhD, right, in a scientific discipline? So it's almost like saying, has my organization, the government, <laughs> yeah approved you so it's completely circular yeah absolutely well then it goes back to 
what you were talking about earlier with all scientists being anarchists or, you know, basically not because when, when the government has to accredit those universities, then those, you know, you kind of need to like, you can't get too wild and crazy or else, or else you're not, you know, you're not going to be approved. And so that, that follows down the line. So you can't get too wild and crazy in the lab. Um, and so that kind of like slows any kind of um, inquiry. Yeah, it just it steers it uh, in very subtle or, ways. Yeah, steers it actually. Yeah, and it's really it's it's super effective. It's way more effective than like if the government just said, "Okay, here's what you're doing. Like yeah. you're going to do this." Well, I'm sure um, I'm sure you're familiar with the Overton window, right? Yeah. Do you think everybody is? Uh, you can explain <laughs> it. <laughs> it's like the the accepted opinion on any given area, like a the the well the the accepted like range, yeah, range of discussion. And any side, anything outside of that is basically taboo, and like you're crazy, right? Like you could, like I guess in biomedical, it's like, um. I guess I guess people still accept that, like maybe say sugar is bad. Yeah, <laughs> you could never say sugar is healthy or like fructose, but but no. you could have the debate like how unhealthy is it? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I think you know scientist A on the panel thinks it's less unhealthy than scientist B, and then like scientist C thinks it's healthy, but he's not on the panel. <laughs> yeah, or or like like how much of it, or in like what what context and different. Yeah, you can, but anything, but you cannot say that it is healthy. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that pretty much wraps it up. Did you have anything else you wanted to discuss? Um, well, I had one thing that I sent to you other than that anarchist thing, which is this came out in JAMA, the Journal of mm-hmm. oh, I, thought that, I thought that was connected to the anarchism thing. Oh, no, this is totally different. This is like a legitimate scientific paper. <laughs> uh, so it's um, it's called Association Between Dietary Factors and Mortality from Heart Disease, Stroke, and Type 2 Diabetes in the United States. Uh, and it has an editorial along with it, which is also interesting. But it basically just goes through and has um, its epidemiology. So they took 10 specific dietary factors. Uh, and associated those mathematically with mortality from heart disease, stroke, and type 2 diabetes among U.S. results, or U.S. adults. And anyway, what they find out is that, uh, let's see, red meat is associated with cardiometabolic deaths, salt, you know, all that crap. And fruits and vegetables are associated with not eating enough of that is associated with these problems. So it's just one of these papers. It's not all that interesting. The, uh, the editorial is a little bit more interesting because they bring up some questions like confounding factors. And I want to get into that. I might, I might like write a blog post about this, but you know, when they say red meat, right. Mm -hmm. Um, whenever you look into the methods, you'll be surprised what, is in that category or like processed meat because 
like I I saw one paper where the processed meat category, some of the foods were like pepperoni pizza. Yeah. <laughs> because the pepperoni is like a processed meat, right? Yeah. Or um, like a cheesesteak would be red meat. Or, you know, what? And, and so they don't count that as like plus cheese, plus bread, plus whatever. So a study like this, this huge study, and it's going to get all this press. Um, I think all it's really showing is what all the other studies that preceded it show, which is that people who don't care about their diet. So in America, if you don't care, like you just eat normal food, you go to normal restaurants, you eat what your parents fed you. You're probably not going to eat a lot of omega-3 from fish. <laughs> you're probably not going to eat a lot of uh, nuts and seeds and fruits and vegetables. And you're probably going to eat more red meat, processed meats, and sugar-sweetened beverages and salt, right? Yeah. You won't eat any organ meats either. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right. That's not on here. But uh, Whereas if you care about your health, right, it, whether you're paleo or whether you're a vegan, you're going to eat more vegetables and prob and maybe fruits, depending on how low carb you are, than the average American, right? Yeah. And you're going to eat less salt. Um, so just those two factors alone, they don't select for like people that don't eat red meat. They select for people that eat a specific diet versus a non-specific diet. So all of these epidemiological studies, and this is the latest one. They do the same thing. They get these categories. I wouldn't be surprised if they tinkered around with the categories until they got this result, right? Because what's conspicuously absent is saturated fat. And they might say, oh, well, that's contained in red meat. Well, what about eggs? What about dairy? That's not on here either. And I wouldn't be surprised if they crunched the numbers and they couldn't get a result with saturated fat. But if they included something called processed red meats or unprocessed red meats, then they can. Uh, they, I don't think they publish their raw data. I think that, um, what's her name? Uh, who's the girl that did the really big blog post like a decade ago about the China study? Denise Menger? Yeah. I think she scared everybody straight about publishing their raw data. <laughs> <laughs> Denise Menger's going to be after them. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because, I mean, it's funny. She what Was she like an English major in college or something? And she yeah. just knew how to, how oh, to run. Not a scientist. Right. But she, she has like the software. Everybody has software on their computer that can run an analysis of variance. So she would just do that and like, well, look, you know, if you do this slightly different thing, then it's the opposite result. So I wanted to talk about that. It's just mentioned that as it's. And you can just tell from their writing, like just right off the bat, their introduction. It's so boring. I think that science, it also suffers from like the reason why Trump was so successful, you know, in politics is because he made it exciting. Mm -hmm. And if you listen to the other politicians, I don't think it's a coincidence that they're it's boring. They're like, well, you know, we have to change the corporate income tax rate by three percent like it's so boring and nobody cares and then he gets up there and he's just like build a wall you know <laughs> people are like they can feel it you know they're like i see the wall uh, and it's like that with science like these people are just like you know there there's a substantial economic and health burden from cardiometabolic disease and type 2 diabetes 
and that there may be an association of suboptimal diet with overall health care. Like, and it's like, I'm already <laughs> asleep. asleep. Yeah. It's like two sentences in. Yeah. So yeah, that's something I got this study in an email from my old department at Rutgers. And, uh, so apparently like the academic establishment finds this paper significant. Hmm. And I think it's, it's most likely garbage. Uh, but you know, are people you, so, are going to uh, cite it. What are you doing now? You graduated at Rutgers, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to officially get my PhD like in the mail in May, <laughs> but nice. I defended my dissertation in January and, um, I had to do some edits, but that's all done. And yeah, I got a postdoc, uh, in Florida in nice. university of central Florida at Orlando. And yeah, like I said before, it's pretty cool. It's like I applied to it on a lark. I, I didn't even think I was really qualified because it's like a pure biochemistry. Um, and I've never really done that. But I was thinking about it. And this is another one of the problems with science. The more basic science, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but it's more prestigious. Like, have yeah, you ever, like, like physics? Yeah, physics, but even in biomedical, like somebody who does um like say a clinical investigation like a dietary restriction or something they're kind of like you know third tier compared to like somebody who has like shit in test tubes yeah <laughs> or like somebody who's using like infrared spectrum to get the absorbance of like a certain enzyme under certain conditions like those people are just presumed to be smarter I think it's the same in physics. Uh, theoretical physicists are just, in general, more prestigious than experimental physicists. Um, so I was like, well, okay. <laughs> I'll just get in this really basic lab. So, yeah, you thought you wouldn't make it because it's it's supposed to be harder. Well, not so... I mean, I figured, like, maybe, maybe this guy will want me, maybe not. Who knows? I guess he liked me in the interview, so that's great. So he offered me the job. But the reason why I took it is because, like, if I, you know, like, we're making this podcast and I write things, and if I eventually write a book about how crappy, like, science is, it's going to be better if I have this, like, very basic science job and I'm, have, mm -hmm. I'm published broadly in, like, respected journals, you know? Yeah. Because if I went and got, like, whatever the equivalent of, like, a Ray Pete job would be... <laughs> <laughs> And people could just say, oh, that guy can't, he couldn't hack it in real academic science. So he's got sour grapes and now he says they're all corrupt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're, they're using the, they're disqualifying you and and dismissing you based on your, your personal qualifications. Right, it's like an appeal to authority, I guess, fallacy. Exactly, yeah. Well, it's, uh, it would actually be ad hoc that or ad hominem. You know, right. where you're you're basically attacking the person that's making the argument, not actually attacking the argument itself. Right, exactly. So yeah, so it's like if you were arguing with somebody about climate science and say they said, "Are you a scientist?" and then I could say yes. Say, <laughs> Are you a climate scientist? Yeah. So it's like okay, now I have to go get a different degree. Exactly. And then say you come back and say, "Yeah, I'm a climate climate scientist," and then they could say. Well, is this particular subfield your particular subfield? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like... exactly. It's a perfect way to to basically silence any kind of uh, opposing opinion, basically, because you're only qualified unless you have this extremely specific, you know, 
background. And then it's or you agree with the person. Well, yeah, (laughs) because nobody ever says like you know Al Gore gets up and says something like, "Uh, "Mr. Vice President, are you a scientist? Are you a climate?" Like it's like, of course he's not. Yeah, he's a politician. Like, but it doesn't matter because he's saying the correct thing. Yeah. So, but I figured you know for the purposes of like you know, plus it's just a job. Like so. But yeah, that's what I'm up to now. I'm analyzing enzymes. Very cool. I mean, well, enzymes are important, you know? I think that's actually, I don't, this is just kind of like my my own like personal supposition based on what I've read. Nobody's actually ever explained this explicitly to me, but like the whole idea of you know, your genes are your destiny is sort of an incomplete picture because your genes are what code for, are code for the proteins and enzymes in your body. And so however many of those enzymes and proteins are in your body, that's what determines, you know, like whatever, like your your genes are only one part of the, the train, so to speak. Right. And then on top of that, you also have to have the the vitamins and mineral cofactors that work with those enzymes as well. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, there's a million ways that you could say that like the genes aren't the only story, but yeah, actually the, the lab I'm working in works with cofactors. Um, but it's like this really specific type of cofactor. Uh, so of course, vitamins, right. Are external cofactors mm-hmm. like B6 or B12. They have to be there for some, enzymatic reaction but uh these enzymes that my lab studies um they get modified after being translated into their protein they get modified further to have like you know part of the protein will have a side chain that gets changed into a cofactor that does the actual work of the enzyme so it has to have another enzyme or like a metal like copper or something Mm -hmm. to uh, create the active site within the enzyme. And it's called a cofactor. It's still part of the protein, but that's just what it's called in the literature. Um, It's kind of like heme, you know, the, the the cofactor that binds oxygen. So there's all kinds of things like that. Uh, And so in that sense, yeah, like the, the protein as translated from the genome is inactive. Yeah, and then it requires certain conditions to become the active protein. Yeah, and that, that's that's why I my like um my like dietary pi- paradigm, if you could call it that, is basically just micronutrients. You know, because as long if you're not getting those micronutrients, then your enzymes and aren't going to be able to to be activated. Because if you if you look into like, you know, if you look into all the studies that, you know, zinc is good for such and such, like what it's actually doing is working with a protein or like right. if you have like, there's a big thing over the past couple of years about having like copper overload. Well, the problem with that is not that you have too much copper, it's that you don't have a protein that manages the copper in your, <clears throat> in your serum. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. So that's, you're going to have you're trying to do that poster at the next AHS about micronutrients? Oh, uh, no, that didn't work out. I mean, if they let me, <laughs> I was, I was really busy at the time juggling like a lot of things. And so, yeah. And I didn't really, uh, didn't I didn't, I, yeah, I didn't have, 
and I mean, like, I had the idea, but there's, like, you know, in order to do something like that, I would have to, like, find, like, a dozen papers, basically. And right. papers like that is not, are not easy to find, I don't think. At least I don't know how to find them easily. It's just kind of, again, like, this general, like, working working theory that I have that... um. Or well, so that was more about like how micronutrients influence metabolism. Um, mm-hmm. But what I was just talking about was like how you know micro the basically the interplay between like micronutrients and and proteins, enzymes, and stuff like that, which would be interesting as well. But that's kind of what I see a lot. You know, once once you like read enough stuff and you're paying attention enough and you know enough information, again, like like how like Pete. Um, says thing you know how how he um teaches and educates people is you know he writes these essays um and talks about the results of the essays and then usually from them you can kind of like draw your own conclusions at least if you have like some background in there or you know pete himself provides a lot of background that then you could go and read other papers and and see and kind of like read between the lines like that Right. So yeah, that's that's one of my uh, working theories. Is I I think like micronutrients are are most important. Like I kind of see like so like Dave Asprey and a lot of other like paleo people they'll talk about how you know the calories in calories out model is is stupid. Like Gary Taubes he um is a good source for that. Um. But I think that's kind of like an incomplete um, model, you know, because they're all, you know, Seco is stupid, but they just go like one level lower to macronutrients. So now everything is about fat and protein and carbs. Right. And they don't really like, like, yeah, micronutrients are great and you should, you should get those, but that's not like part of, but if you're still eating but it doesn't matter like what kind of micronutrients you, micronutrients you get eating too many carbs is still going to be bad for you. Right. Well, I think, you know, Gary Tobbs like was selected by the market, you know, to be popular. And it just shows like a simple message works well, right? It's like there's something compelling about like I remember a long time ago watching his first talk like about like glycerol three phosphate is like determines, you know, whether an adipocyte grows with fatty acids or not. And the main thing that turns that on is insulin. And the main thing that upregulates insulin is glucose. And that was like his whole hypothesis, you know, and it's just so simple. Whereas if you were to say, well, so zinc. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is involved in the <laughs> yeah like, well, like yeah people want to stay away from like the Krebs cycle and like the the what is it like the citric acid cycle yeah those are the same yeah thing. Oh, okay they are that's what I thought because I I keep seeing them in similar contexts but yeah they want to stay away from that stuff as much as possible like once you get down to this whoa slow down right that's that's too much yeah but it's I guess it's kind of funny. Because I guess I wouldn't really consider Taub's to be like his message to be simple. Or I guess it's kind of funny because his message is simple, 
but he writes like these extremely long and extremely long books, but like they're well, extremely well argued. He's like very good at rhetoric. Yes. Yeah. So that's the formula for success, right? Like he's basically Donald Trump. <laughs> he has a, a simple message and then he connects it to like, you know, ethos and like, so it's like low on logos and like high on ethos, you know, like you've just got a little bit of information and then you go, okay, this information is pure and true. Like glucose increases insulin, insulin, uh, does a bunch of things to cause fat storage. Yeah. And yeah. then he just goes through and provides a ton of evidence that's like charged with kind of emotional rhetoric about that one piece of information. Yeah, I guess you could kind of like use as a litmus, a litmus test, like how easily you're able to like read something and then go and make that argument to another person. Because it's very easy to go read Taub's book. And then, like, you can, ha you know, pretty, uh, you know, without much difficulty, win an argument against somebody just right. having read that book. Because it's it's easy for you to transfer all of the rhetorical devices that he used and, and use them. Whereas, like, if you're actually, like, reading papers and stuff like that, it's extremely difficult to, like, synthesize all of that and then create a cogent argument. Yeah. Uh, I, and you know, I don't think that Gary Tobbs is like, I'm glad that he exists, you know, but it's when you step back and like, you know, he's been around for over a decade now and he's had all this success. And then there's been all these challenges to like his idea. And he's had to kind of step back. Like he backpedaled on carbs and just said, okay, it's just simple carbs. Mm -hmm. And uh, then he sort of has gotten on board with like the fructose thing. And he's backpedaling a lot. Um, I think he's going to have to hold his ground there <laughs> or yeah. else he'll have nothing. Um, but even Tobbs, I think, is is better for the discussion than like the average, like, you know, university scientist about health because they won't even engage with the ideas like of a regular person. So. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I mean, Tobbs, it's like he's clearly like great at marketing, you know, like he's like from his first paper in like the New York times, you know, like what if it's all been a big fat lie or whatever it was called? Yeah. Uh, it's genius, you know? Yeah. 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 He, I mean, he is a great writer. There's, there's no doubt about that.